0: Hello and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. My name is Eli. I'm Jason. And today we're talking about the 1931 film Machen in Uniform. <laughs> so I think it's only best that we start this episode off with acknowledging that we can't say German words, and are going to say them throughout anyway. We formally apologise, there is nothing to be done. <laughs> we also have some content warnings before we start the episode proper the film contains and therefore we will be discussing an attempted suicide a relationship between an adult and a child neglect of children by authority figures uh, and we'll also be discussing stereotypical homophobia and the nazis yep
1: yeah which i mean as soon as we said 30s film yeah german film <laughs> Nineteen thirty-one. You sort of know what you're in for. Unfortunately so.
0: So if any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this one and listen to a different episode. Um, So we'll start off by giving a plot summary. So if you're very anxious not to be spoiled for this film that is nearly a century old, (laughs) uh, stop listening to the podcast. Um, So the film is about 14-year-old Manuela, whose father was a soldier and whose mother has died. Uh, She's brought to a boarding school for the daughters of Prussian officers and nobility, which is characterised by the very authoritarian discipline maintained by the headmistress. The girls are fed and clothed inadequately, which the school tries to portray as a virtue. The girls sleep in dorms supervised by a teacher. The most popular of the teachers is Fraulein von Bernberg, who many of the girls have crushes on, and who alternates between towing the line demanded by the headmistress and giving affection to her charges. Most obviously, this is done by kissing each girl on the forehead before bed. Manuela, when her turn comes, does not take this demurely, but throws her arms around Bernberg, and Bernberg responds by kissing her instead of the forehead on the mouth. Um, And so Manuela develops an intense crush on Bernberg, as you do when you're at an all-girls boarding school, I guess, (laughs) to the extent of not being able to function in class, and Bernberg gives Manuela a petticoat for her own clothes when she learns Manuela's are full of holes. The girls put on a play, Schiller's Don Carlos, in which Manuela acts the lead role dressed in men's clothes, another good solid trope of being gay at a girls' boarding school. (laughs) (laughs) After the party, the girls get drunk on punch, and Manuela publicly declares her love for Bernberg to the girls. The headmistress overhears this, declares it a scandal, and isolates Manuela from the others. Bernberg is forbidden from seeing Manuela but does so, although only to tell her that they can't see each other anymore in response the headmistress and bernberg have a showdown in which Bamberg says that manuela's feelings are love and not sin and that she will resign rather than continuing to support the headmistress's regime the girls and bernberg then find manuela just in time to stop her from jumping to her death from the school's central staircase and the headmistress is silent for the first time in response the film ends with military bugles playing outside yeah yeah first things first what did you think of this film
1: I enjoyed it. Uh, it was—it's f- fairly short for anyone who wants to watch it. It's only around eighty minutes. That's the good thing about nineteen thirties films. Mm. Mm. And so I think the slow pacing that you often get with like really old films is
0: mitigated. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And I thought the actresses all did a really good job. Mm-hmm. I bought the emotions. Mm-hmm. and the big sort of heartfelt confessions and dramatic moments. So in that sense, like technically, it seemed like quite a well-made film.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I
1: don't know. What did you think of it?
0: Well, I'm in reply of that actually going to ask you quickly one more question, which is that from the plot just game, I feel like it sounds like a very like, heavy, emotionally intense,
1: sad film. Mm. Is that how you felt watching it? No. Mm. No, it's definitely quite... Lighthearted. There's a lot of giggling, there's a lot of joking around. Mm. As befits a movie set in a girl's boarding school, even as there are some fairly dire circumstances surrounding that situation, it's still a bunch of teenage girls. They still act like real teenage girls.
0: Well, interesting about that as well is that a lot of them aren't actresses. They are just schoolgirls. Right, okay.
1: That's that's not super surprising. No,
0: it's not. So that uh, sort of quite naturalistic acting Mm. makes sense in that context. Mm. But yeah, I like just kind of expect old movies to suck. (laughs) I know that's not justified, and I have old movies that I really like, but I still go into it being like, this is going to suck. Yeah, yeah. And, I, yeah, I also found the girls who are most of the screen time to be, like, just a lot of fun. Hmm. I think it's that thing where we sort of, even people like us who talk about history a lot, uh sometimes forget that people in the 30s were also just like people you know they're still to school girls with like dirty posters and stuff and so it was really delightful to be like forcefully reminded of that yeah like i'm thinking in particular of that scene where they're talking about the different actors they like and one of them says like oh he has more sex appeal and she says like sex appeal in english and it just made me laugh really hard
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah don't they like specifically it's sort of like oh what's the term yes sex Sex appeal
0: appeal. yeah i liked that a lot sorry
1: i actually wrote down the specific line it was sex appeal neat
0: (laughs) it's good i enjoyed it i would watch it again like like sometimes we watch movies or whatever for this and i'm like i'm watching this for the podcast but i don't care about this Mm, mm. but i would watch this again at some point so Mm. um yeah i think we should probably specify that the pictures we're talking about of this actor with sex appeal is um like a collage one of the girls had that is like hidden uh, behind it, a sort of like camouflage, like white bit of paper <laughs> on the inside of her wardrobe. And that was great. Yeah. Uh, so this has been a fairly lighthearted chat. And I don't really know how to segue into talking a bit about what interwar Germany was like now, which is in some ways less fun. <laughs> yeah, so we'll just give a bit of background into the period we're talking about now. As mentioned, 1931, we're in interwar Germany. Following World War I, Kaiser Wilhelm II was forced to abdicate and the Weimar Republic was created with a government consisting of a president, a chancellor, and a parliament. The Weimar Republic is a time of relative freedom regarding sexuality and gender expression, and so, this time sees a flourishing of a queer rights movement and urban queer subculture, largely in Berlin. So, notably, for example, in 1919, Magnus Hirschfeld opened his uh, Sexology Institute in Berlin, which I think in one of our like first three episodes or something, we're like, yeah, we'll talk about that one day. Uh, we haven't. <laughs> <laughs> for queer women specifically, at this time in Berlin, there's bars and personal columns, social clubs, balls, journals, dating agencies, and so forth.
1: Wow. Uh, so that's yeah, quite. Yeah. Formalised, I guess.
0: Yeah, like quite a robust, uh, thriving social scene that's going on for women who are interested in other women at this time. To just ricochet wildly between tones throughout the episode, whilst all of these lovely little lesbian patisseries and so forth are going on, Germany is struggling economically quite a bit. Uh, thanks in part to conditions laid out in the Treaty of Versailles after World War I, which required them to pay large reparations. Although there was a period where the Republic somewhat found its feet, the economy was greatly affected by the US stock market crash of October 29, 1929, ushering in the Great Depression and causing a crisis for Germany. Uh, and this influenced to just summarise people's entire like academic careers in one sentence. Germany uh, to shift to the right politically and socially, and anti-Semitism and misogyny and homophobia grew,
1: and this paved the way for the rise of the Nazi party. Which hopefully is not news to that many of you.
0: So I think it's worth noting um, that despite the existence of things like lesbian bars and stuff like this, there's still a very ambivalent place that queer people have in like German society this time this sort of contradiction between the fact that, like, again, places like bars and, like, lesbian magazines and stuff are allowed to exist, but also that social tolerance kind of only goes so far and there's a lot of repressive laws still on the books. Uh, So although in a few short years we're going to have a very different landscape for queer people in Berlin, that shift is not as dramatic and hard to comprehend as it might seem on paper.
1: Yeah, that makes it sound like, you know, sort of you had a thriving queer community, but you didn't necessarily have mainstream acceptance of queer people. Hmm. So therefore, the fact that you then had a more repressive regime that actively targeted queer people is not super surprising.
0: Yeah, and it's worth noting as well that while um, sex between women isn't illegal, sex between men is illegal at this time, while there are similarly, like, bars for gay men Mm. around. And, like, that's not even all that uncommon. That was the case in Australia a few decades ago. Yeah. Um, And that brings us to this film... The film is based on a play that was written by a woman called Krista Winslow, first produced in Leipzig in nineteen thirty, and then in Berlin in nineteen thirty one. Uh the play was called Gestern und Heute yesterday and today, so they changed it for the film because they wanted a more like clickbaity title, basically. Yeah, yesterday and today is not. It, yeah, it what have much does that mean? pizzazz. What does that mean? <laughs> the play was directed by a woman called Leon Time Sagan, and obviously it was successful enough as a play that they decided to make a film out of it. Uh, Sagan also directed the film. Okay, uh, she didn't really have a background in film. She'd never directed one before. Mm-hmm. She would only direct one more after this. Mm-hmm. so her chops come from the theater uh, as an actress and as a director there. Um, so the movie has a female writer, a female director, and an all-female cast yeah wow which is pretty cool and is quite unusual at the time like there aren't a lot of i'm not sure i'm not sure that this is the first film directed by a woman in germany but it's a very early example and i think certainly the only one that has the addition of like the all-female cast and writer the film was produced by carl frolic who was much more established in the film world uh and because he was more established in the film world he was able to have a lot more influence than he would have with a more experienced director. Uh, so he's responsible for the name change, and there seems to have generally been quite significant creative differences between Sagan and Winslow on the one hand and Frolic on the other hand, with Frolic wanting to reduce how overtly queer the film was in order to make it more wildly
1: appealing. Right, so was then the play more overtly queer than the film? Yes.
0: Of those who were involved in making this film the only ones we know definitely were lesbians uh crystal winslow who wrote the play mm-hmm. which makes sense to me <laughs> uh and erica mann who played one of the teachers not even one of the significant ones just one of the teachers
1: Oh okay, yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. But I include mention of it because Erica Mann is like quite a well-known person in her own right, and maybe we'll talk about her one day. Regarding the others, there's like some speculation, but we just don't know that much about them at all. So who knows? Mm. The film, as with the play, was a big success both in Germany and internationally. We're not going to talk about the cinematography and whatnot too much for time reasons. We like to prioritize the gay here, (laughs) Uh, but it was praised for uh, its use of lighting, its use of sound. Uh, Which is particularly interesting, given that sound in movies is quite a new concept at the time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I I thought the movie was quite well shot. And the fact that you have informed me that it was a novice director Mm. is quite surprising.
0: Mm. Many important figures in the film's creation went into exile shortly after the Nazis came to power in 1933. An exception is Carl Froehlich, who continued to make films successfully throughout the Third Reich. So that gives you an idea of
1: him. Yeah.
0: Herta Thiele, the actress who played Manuela, in an interview said, I lost many friends during this time. Everyone in the theatre had more or less made friends with a great many Jewish employees. It is astounding to think, for example, of all the Jews in Machen. You were only first aware that they were Jewish when fascism was there and you lost your friends. For example, Walter Supper, who was Karl Froelich's assistant director, was married to a Jew. She would have been arrested, so he shot her, himself, and his dog. Oh. Krista Winslow left Germany and moved countries a few times and was murdered on the 10th of June 1944. Uh, there were rumours that she was a Nazi spy, but her friends believed that she'd been murdered by a Gestapo agent and she'd helped many Jewish friends out of Germany. So I realized that this is like quite heavy content all of a sudden. Uh, and I just wanted to include it because from my reading, I feel like it's easy for people to sort of decontextualize this film and take it as just kind of like sort of quite a generic anti-authoritarianism message. Mm. And I think it's really important to keep in mind exactly what these people were on the brink of when they're making this film.
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things that I noted down yeah. when I was watching that did feel quite specific.
0: Mm. I also think that, uh, particularly as we get further and further away from the Holocaust, and as uh, you know, right wing attitudes in the West continue to get stronger, mm-hmm. uh, that it's important to like give space to anything that kind of brings home and humanizes the victims of the Holocaust like I think it's really easy for people even like decent people who are not Holocaust denies or anything to not really kind of get it in any way because like it's just a number mm. And that's, like, fine. Like, that makes sense. So I think that having in the back of your mind while we talk about these actors goofing around on set and so forth, that some of them are shortly going to die in the Holocaust, frankly, is medicine that society needs to take at the moment. Yeah. The woman who plays Ilsa, who is the, like, main joking schoolgirl Mm -hmm. uh, and my favourite character, (laughs) uh, was Jewish. And I had a hurried late-night Google search, but she got out. Oh, Oh, yeah. That's nice. All of that brings us, I guess, quite neatly into talking about what is generally taken as the main theme of the film. It's- anti-authoritarianism as we've mentioned it takes place in this boarding school it is very very strict and the effect of that on the girls is shown throughout the film in a very negative light analysis of this is generally the main focus of any critique of the film until recently uh, so for example like several critiques that are considered canonical mm-hmm. reviews of this film um, such as siegfried Krakauer's 1947 book Uh, from Caligari to Hitler, a psychological history of the German film in its discussion of this film uh, focuses solely on it as an anti-authoritarian work and does not mention the queerness at all. And that's quite normal uh, for reviews at the time of like several decades afterwards. So while that being the sole focus of analysis is disappointing, it still is something that the film talks about. They have not made this up.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so literally the second thing I wrote down when I was watching this film was prison vibes, question marks? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very apparent in the opening scene which occurs without dialogue where the girls are sort of being marched around Mm -hmm. the sort of grounds of the school and everything from the striped uniforms Mm. through to the being marched from place to place through to the assemblies and then as the film goes on the discipline even just very specifically the set um, with the staircases Mm. where manuela's eventual attempted suicide occurs feels very prison-like like, and specifically made me think of I think it's Foucault's examination of the comparison between prisons and schools mm. um as Foucault likes to do comparing everything in society to prison <laughs> where yeah you kind of see these big square multi-level environments where everyone can see everyone mm. um there, there's like a fancy yeah academic term for this as well, yeah. um but you know that like watchtower prison setup yeah, yeah yeah and it i definitely got those kind of vibes from this film which is interesting because it's obviously like this is before we sort of had as much academic discussion and media about this yeah uh, about that kind of prison industrial complex but yeah i definitely got that vibe and to therefore have that be presented as this is bad and all of the good in this film is opposed to it mm. makes it fairly obvious which side yeah. the filmmakers yes are on
0: yeah so some other way that the film makes that sort of point. Uh, The Headmistress is a visual reference to Frederick the Great, and through that the sort of old social order that she is trying to support in her bearing and her cane and her gait and her medallion. This was noted in contemporary reviews of people who saw it when it first came out. In opposition, the girls are associated with modernity in their sort of emotion and their rebellion, but also in their hobbies. Emancipatory sexual politics, jazz, the adulation of film stars, popular novels. These are all things that are associated with a modern culture that is in opposition to that represented by the headmistress. Uh, so we've mentioned already how Elsa shows off her collage of Mr. Sex Appeal. <laughs> uh, and the girls look at pictures of male athletes. There's one instance where they read a romantic novel. After the play, they demand that one of the girls stops playing a waltz on the piano and that they play jazz instead.
1: Mm. Mm. Obviously, this film is in German, we watched it with subtitles, Mm -hmm. but it did feel like the dialogue in the scenes where it was just the girls by themselves and they were able to kind of express themselves properly felt a lot more modern. Mm. which is obviously just partially just because it's less formal. Mm -hmm. Whereas the scenes, whenever there is a teacher involved, particularly if it's not uh, von Bernberg, (laughs) are very stilted and very formal and much more kind of what we think of German sounding like in popular culture.
0: Mm. You also mentioned the sort of opening montage Mm. where the girls are being like marched around and whatnot. And another thing that it does in that opening montage is kind of like show you all of these shots of like old Prussian architecture in Potsdam where it was set which I think also does a lot to set up the kind of underlying like background that is always looming over these girls uh just through these visuals um and the film cuts back to shots of this architecture at two moments in the film so after bernbeck kisses manuela and after she gives her the petticoat it cuts back to these shots of architecture Mm. uh sort of calling back to what they are threatening with their affection for each other and what is threatening them in turn yeah okay i also wanted to talk about the bugles (laughs) it's bugle time bugle time the film here is an example from jason (laughs) So the film starts with like bugles, like military bugles playing, uh, which seems upright and scary and militaristic. Mm -hmm. And it also ends on these bugles playing. Mm -hmm. So it sort of bookends the film with these audio references to militarism. And the reason why I mentioned the bugles in particular is because the bugles have been much discussed in the scholarship, uh, particularly as a key piece of discussion about how effective the message of the film is. So uh, Siegfried Rakawa, who we mentioned earlier, is the person who does not mention this being gay at all, criticised the film as being overly timid in its anti-fascism. So the chapter in his book that discussion of it is included in is called Timid Heresies. And basically his point is that whilst the headmistress is defeated within the school, outside the school, the authority structure that produced her has not been challenged at all and is unaffected. And he sees the bugles as evidence of this, as something that kind of Essentially, renders that victory as meaningless because it reminds us at that moment that that power structure is out there.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that was kind of my reaction to the plot of the movie as well. Yeah, the headmistress suffers a symbolic defeat hmm. um, in the sense that she kind of seems to at least somewhat realize the harm that has been done, hmm. but nothing concretely changes at the end of the film. Hmm. Von Bernberg is still, as far as we are aware, leaving the school.
0: Is that not something that concretely changes then?
1: Well, but that's like a bad, that's that's like a step towards.
0: Yeah, I I mean, yeah, I guess that is kind of another discussion of like, can you change the system from within or not?
1: Which is to say that there isn't a revolution within the school. And so to criticise the film for not challenging the power structures outside the school seems to kind of ignore... The fact that the movie ends on a fairly dark note.
0: Mm. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, sort of mixed feelings in the scholarship I found on if that's true or not, where a lot of people read it as a happy ending.
1: Yeah, see, that's bizarre to me, because mm. to me, it felt like a very deflating ending. Mm.
0: I tend to agree with uh, Richard McCormick made this point, but also the various scholars I read made this point that... The point that Krakauer is making is being made by the film. You know, the bugles aren't there at the end as an accident that remind us opposed to the the film's point Mm. that the power structure outside the school still exists. The point is that while maybe there's some kind of relative temporary victory inside, yes, there is still an an ongoing power structure that is not challenged. But I think that that makes more sense as a reading if we again think about the time this is made. If it sort of says, you know here are things that challenge this order, here are ways in which sort of women can, through solidarity, make some progress towards challenging that. But, you know, instead of kind of ending on this note of, so that's done now, ending on a note of, and here's all of this work that's left to do, makes much more sense given the people who are sitting in the cinema and the climate they were in.
1: Yeah, and I mean, even the one interaction between the school and the outside world when the princess comes to visit and one of the girls suggests the idea of telling the princess what has been going on in this school and mm. asking for her help and the opportunity arises and she doesn't say anything part of that is because the headmistress is there at the time mm. but it also seems to me a kind of indication of acknowledging that there are wider power structures at work that can't necessarily be challenged in that way
0: so that's a bit of an View of what's going on with that in the film, I guess. So, having done our vague duty towards adequately talking about this movie, let's talk about how it's gay now. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is quite gay. It is quite gay, yeah. Um, so as mentioned uh, sexuality is generally omitted from analysis of the film critics at the time or sort of just earlier than now would sometimes acknowledge it but in a very sort of like offhand way or dismiss it as an adolescent phase being depicted and so forth Morden Hall in a 1932 review of the film for the New York Times directory of film said uh, it is actually more of a wrap on the knuckles for the militaristic notions than an exposition of unnatural affections and that I think basically gives you an idea of the tone of reviews of this movie nevertheless recognition of the fact that this film is like really gay uh, is evidenced in its censorship so um, Vito Russo who was a fairly groundbreaking scholar on the depiction of queerness in film um, he wrote a book called The Cellulite Closet uh, uncovered the New York State censors notes on the American release of the film and basically it just sought to cut out like anything that we are about to talk about (laughs) that could be considered gay and so it was finally approved after it cut out a bunch of stuff and then released to the American public. The film fell out of distribution for quite a while but was rediscovered in the 1970s and became a cult film amongst feminists and especially lesbians uh, in the United States and in England and France because they viewed it as an early gay film. German feminists found this reception overly simplified. They found that these readings often ignored historical and political context of the film. So I couldn't really access their criticism because it was like in German and not accessible to me. But it seems that uh, assuming that these uh, scholars are not all homophobic, that it was earlier viewed basically solely as an anti-authoritarian film Mm -hmm. whilst the queerness was ignored and then kind of had a phase where the queerness was focused on with at the expense of the anti-authoritarianism
1: yeah which is just wild to me Mm -hmm. because i mean i very much viewed it as those two things being very enmeshed yeah yeah inextricable
0: yes yeah i would tend to agree (laughs) so shall we just kind of list off ways in which this media is gay, for a bit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because I've got uh, quite a few notes. Good. Um, Most of which...
0: maybe I'll see the floor to you. (laughs) Uh, Tell me how we know this film is gay, Jason.
1: So we are informed pretty much straight away Mm -hmm. that all the girls... In Fräulein von Bernberg's dorm Have a crush on her Yeah, And I was like okay sure The gay starts early Yes. We then immediately kind of get visual And audio cues For what will become The kind of blossoming relationship Between von Bernberg and Manuela when they meet Von Bernberg grabs her hands Quite intensely and says I expect total discipline Whilst looking like that is not what she expects In any way <laughs> But we also have a lot of very gay moments between the students. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of draping arms over shoulders. There's a scene where a girl grabs another girl's breasts and says, what a body, which is pretty gay. (laughs) That's a pretty gay thing to say. Obviously, the aforementioned bedtime kisses scene Mm -hmm. um, where all of the girls sit at the end of their beds with their heads up waiting for their kiss and when they get their kiss they kind of fall back on their beds dramatically i expected that this there would be something like this but Mm. it was just so much more than i was expecting (laughs) there are like gentle strokes of legs uh slapping of butts there's just a lot Mm. of very gay moments between the um, female students and then also, yeah, the scenes with Manuela and von Bernberg um, in class where it seems like neither of them can kind of handle Mm. the kind of hot and heavy descriptions in the poetry that is being read, which I found quite interesting because initially in that scene, I kind of felt like Manuela had a bit more agency in that the reading seems to be making von Bernberg much more uncomfortable than it was Manuela. But then, once Manuela had to read herself, she just completely lost composure. But yeah, overall, uh, it was pretty gay. It was, um, it was quite gay, yeah. Mm. I'm crying all night because I'm in love with you, is, uh, that's that's pretty explicitly gay. I yeah, mean... It's a tad gay. You know.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, we could go on.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, uh, you mentioned before that you had favourite student. Mm. Uh, my favourite was definitely Edelgard. Mm-hmm. I, I shipped Manuela and Edelgard. I thought they should have been the romance in the film because they were cute and Where's their the interactions were always very wholesome. Good. But yeah, <laughs> I I also wrote a note saying um, with regards to the aforementioned scene with the punch where Manuela gets a bit drunk and then confesses her love that, you know, oh no, being a drunk messy queer who just wants to brag about your girlfriend. Hashtag relatable content. <laughs> um, so, yeah.
0: So, yeah, like, I, as expounded upon here, this film is gay. There have been those who wrote it as not gay who have read the relationship between Manuela and Bernberg as instead being a maternal relationship. So we mentioned earlier the play and how the second staging of the play, the one in Berlin, was gayer than the film. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be interesting to note the ways in which the casting of the actress who played Bernberg influenced that. So the first time the play was put on in Leipzig, uh, the woman who played Bernberg was quite an older woman in her 50s who was quite a, like, matronly type and in that version, it really emphasized this as a sort of pseudo-mother-daughter relationship, uh, certainly influenced a lot by that casting. Mm-hmm. And in the second one, the person who played Bernberg was essentially a butch lesbian, a very masculine actress. Interesting. Yes, and that was one of the things that Froelich did not Want to carry over into the film? He wanted a like traditionally feminine woman cast as Bamberg in order to do away with some of the queer vibes that having that butch woman there brought to the table. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we're not going to spend that much time on talking about is this really just a mother daughter pseudo relationship? Because like it's not. Um, <laughs> it is interesting to talk about the presence of that dynamic, but obviously that can only go so far in explaining anything that happens in this film. <laughs> uh, you know, although like any kind of emotion is frowned upon by the headmistress, a sort of maternal relationship is not the most natural reading for why she calls Manuela's declaration of love a scandal and segregates her from the other girls, saying she fears contagion and the exchange between Bernberg and the headmistress about it is not sin, it is love.
1: Yeah. So... Yeah, that would be a weird movie that's interesting to me that note about the casting differences because Mm -hmm. and for those who haven't seen the film in the film version we get a younger woman but not a butch woman at all as you kind of mentioned and then on the other hand we do get as we've mentioned earlier kind of a bit of gender role play in the form of the play Mm -hmm.
0: it is worth pointing out that having the love interest in early 20th century lesbian novels be a kind of like older say like teacher figure out of boarding school is quite a common trope anyway that that sort of like uh maternal vibe is not something that actually gets in the way of there being a lesbian vibe within the genre at the time anyway i thought that a quote from uh her was interesting here regarding kind of the interplay between bernberg being a romance figure and a mother figure. Mm -hmm. So she said, Froelich also cut out the scene that had been shot already, the scene where I speak about my mother, about the linen closet, and remembering how good the washing smelt and so on. Froelich took this passage out because of what it suggested. It would have provided clarity in the sense of the relationship with the mother, loss of the mother, love for another woman. So basically sort of what she's suggesting is that there's a scene that we don't have in which Manuela talks about her longing for her mother, and this is clearly part of why she attaches itself to bernberg and that frolic cut this because it was too gay <laughs> and i i think that to her it doesn't seem like the exact character of manuela's attachment to bernberg whether it has like you know mother figure vibes or not makes it less gay and makes it seem more like threatening to the film's commercial viability to the producer
1: yeah it's just kind of the closeness of the relationship rather than the specific ways in which that manifests.
0: Yeah. We're kind of like circling around her, Mm -hmm. uh, like a boarding school around a dramatic stairwell that one might throw oneself down. Uh, (laughs) But shall we talk a little bit more directly about Bernberg and like what her deal is? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how uh, the scholar B. Ruby Rich talks about Bernberg in her analysis, which is much better because she is... I'm not sure if she's a lesbian or what, but she's clearly a queer woman talking about this as a queer film, and her analysis of it is, like, quite influential and widely read, and if you're interested in, like, one analysis of the film, maybe read that one. Mm -hmm. But amongst many other things, she talks about how Bernberg plays this sort of good cop role to the headmistress's bad cop role as we've sort of implicitly noted throughout, also regulating the girls just in a different way. And Rich describes Sarah's acting as this kind of pressure valve for the girls' emotions, where she provides this like very rigidly controlled outlet for their need for emotional affection and their lesbian tendencies and so forth that can kind of go so far but no further, so they can still stay confined within the wider system of the school.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that comes across... Uh, early on before we actually meet von bernberg where we're being told about her by one of the other students and the way that she talks about everyone having a crush on von bernberg it all comes across as a bit of a game Mm. and we we see little notes with you know love hearts and vb on them Mm. which uh has a very different connotation in victoria (laughs) (laughs) and yeah no i think that's a pretty good interpretation of how pre-manuela the girls kind of interacted with von bernberg
0: i thought about the goodnight kiss scene uh in that context a lot where as you noticed it's quite a sort of like stylized blocking of the set where they're all like kneeling up at the end of their beds and then they all like really fall back Mm. and this is something that was described and stuff i read as kind of like almost ritualistic religious and it's tone
1: oh absolutely yeah Yeah. it's
0: very i don't know it's intense and weird and it's vibes um but even the way she kisses them like she's sort of like very firmly like holds each girl
1: yeah uh, it's 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 not quite in the staging of it but it almost looks like she and this is kind of i had to sort of pay a bit more attention i was sort of drifting off a bit and i had to pay a bit more attention because after the first girl i thought that what was happening was that she kissed them firmly on the forehead and then pushed them back (laughs) on the bed and i was like wow that's that's got some very much stronger bdsm vibes from this scene than i thought they would be but no that was not what was happening but it was still very dramatic and very um yeah as you said ritualistic
0: Mm. yeah so she's sort of providing this affection but in a way that doesn't feel like wholly soft or wholesome or so forth she kind of gives so much and and only so much and she's very in control of it uh, and so forth
1: yeah um, um boarding school girls can have little a affection as a treat
0: yeah basically and so I mean I guess i'd like to ask what your overall impressions were of her because from your sort of description of all of the queer moments in this film obviously some of which were between the girls and not involving at all mm. um you seemed to quite enjoy them and find them quite like cute and whatnot mm. and i found them like that at times and at other times felt like deeply powerfully uneasy and like very not like scared of Bernburg because i'm like a grown man not in 1930s german boarding school but you know like very averse to her as a person
1: yeah i mean yeah i think um i definitely found the interactions between the students a lot more comfortable and i mean i mentioned before that Mm. i would have preferred yeah if the romance had been between two of the students and yeah i think that kind of Von Bernberg as a slightly intimidating figure. I mean I mentioned earlier that like in her very first scene with Manuela she like stares intensely into her mm. eyes and tells her that she expects total discipline. Mm. Yeah, it is a little bit uncomfortable at times and it's it did feel kinda weird at points that we were heading towards this kind of inevitable emotional climax where obviously we side with von Bernberg and Manuela over the headmistress. Mm. Yeah. But I wasn't necessarily opposed to the idea of Von Bernberg leaving. Because I don't think what she was doing with those girls, whilst it was better treatment than the treatment they received at the hands of the headmistress or the other teachers, that doesn't mean it was healthy or mm. good for them. And I think that's something a lot of young people experience, queer or not, mm. is kind of having authority figures in your life and then having one that doesn't, sort of that, that, that sort of breaks down those lines, whether in a romantic way or not. And yeah, I think the fact that the girls in the story as many young people in real life do idealise that. It was interesting in the way that it wasn't really critiqued.
0: Yeah, the it's it's a sort of thing where like she goes back and forth between being affectionate towards the girls and Menwell specifically and then like shutting them out and being very cold and sort of disciplinary towards them. Mm. And I guess the film kind of sets you up to want her to break down those barriers and to show the affection and so forth and like major steps in this relationship is when she kisses manwether and when she gives her the petticoat and whatnot. Mm. but like really like the appropriate thing to do is to not do any of those things and so it's this weird you know like a like a teacher should be maintaining boundaries and should not be giving personal gifts to students and stuff like that so it's this weird sort of dif- dissonance where when any of those things happened part of it was like okay yes good and part of it was
1: like oh god yeah yeah no yeah. i i agree with that i yeah yeah so the comparison that you made between the headmistress and frederick the great was interesting to me because i i didn't catch that at the time not knowing the visual cues for frederick the great oh, no, no, no. um being not a person who grew up in germany in the 20s yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah, certainly i did get the impression of harking back to a more authoritarian and according to the headmistress superior time mm. in german history mm. she has a line where she says let others follow foolish ways through discipline and hunger we will be great again Or not at all, which is a hell of a line, Mm. both in terms of obviously evoking certain political figures in our modern time, but also in the specific kind of apocalyptic sense that felt very what I've read previously about kind of interwar Europe. That sense of, you know, this is all we can do and there is an inevitable. Sort of sequence of events that's going to occur from now on.
0: Yeah, I think it's like it's probably worth stating explicitly for people who haven't seen the film that that line is her justifying, like essentially starving these girls. Yeah, implicitly because they just don't have the money to feed them properly, which is kind of spinning it as like glory.
1: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) and it's it's really intense, Mm. and you know, given what was to come, feels quite Mm. prescient.
0: Mm. So the last thing I wanted to talk about, fittingly enough, is the end of the film. As we've mentioned at the end of this film, Manuela tries to throw herself down the stairwell and die, and ah, yes. stopped just in time.
1: Ah, yes, Chekhov's stairwell. Chekhov's stairwell, very much. Where earlier in the film a firecracker is thrown down, which felt like a very extraneous scene at the time, and then I was like, oh, I know where this <laughs> is going.
0: <laughs> However, in the original version in the play, Manuela succeeds and throws herself down and dies, and
1: that is the end of the play. Oh. Yes. Wow, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting to me that for the film adaptation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they took out the really dark ending, mm. and instead of replacing it with a bright, happy, fun ending, they replaced it with a ambiguous ending?
0: Mm. Where this seems to come from is a real-life incident in Crystal Winslow's life. Herta Thieler mentions that this film is filmed in the boarding school where Krista Winslow went to school (laughs) and she also mentions quote actually there really was a Manuela who remained lame all of her life after she threw herself down the stairs she came to the premiere of the film I saw her from a distance and at the time Winslow told me the experience is one which I had to write from my heart end quote Uh, which is bananas yeah wow yeah I assume this is true it sounds kind of urban legendy but I assume it's true the fact that this film is filmed where that happened essentially, like they're on a staircase that a girl actually threw herself down at some point, is very dark. Yeah, um, and- no,
1: wow, that's, um, that's thrown me. There's been a couple of things about the production of this film that you've told me that I've been surprised by, but that one definitely takes the cake. Hmm.
0: They did film a version of that ending and then decided to cut it. Uh, So again, I don't know, her Tatila remembers, quote, We screamed with laughter when we saw the result of the preview. I looked like a may beetle taking off in flight. That is how my legs were. It looked really grotesque and ridiculous. After that, Froelich came up with an idea. We'll just let Manuela go as far as climbing over the banisters, and after that, the children will save her. This seems sort of part of some of Froelich's, I think, more defensible work on this film in some way, where... Uh, There's multiple mentions of him sort of, like, calming things down a bit and sort of saying, look, that works for theatre, but you can't act like that in a film. Mm -hmm. Um, So he also did this with the scene where Manuela declares her love, just sort of saying you need to, like, calm that acting down a bit.
1: Mm -hmm. And that acting is
0: certainly not, like, subtle or reserved. It's still very effusive. Yeah. So, like, that makes sense and I'm sure was probably beneficial for the film Mm -hmm. so what's interesting about that explanation is that while it does make sense it doesn't really give any indication of anyone's thoughts about how that altered the final message of the film or anything like that which surely must have been a concern that people had
1: yeah yeah because, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of thing does happen in film when you're restricted in sort of what you can realistically depict. And it sounds like part of the reason why they had to cut this was just because it looked silly, hmm. which, you know, has been a, a problem with much more recent films of people falling to their deaths and looking silly.
0: <laughs> what are you thinking
1: of? I don't know, just like, I'm, I'm just any film where okay. someone falls to their death.
0: <laughs> I'm thinking of the Les Mis movie, like the Tom Hooper Les Mis movie, where Russell Crowe jumps off the bridge and it's fine and then they insert that stupid sound effect when he hits the water that's just like a crack sound and just like kills any pathos
1: that the scene had
0: (laughs) and it makes me so upset
1: (laughs) (sighs) that's a yeah that's definitely a good example although in that case not technical limitations just a terrible oh yeah no just
0: bad yeah it is quite difficult uh but hey
1: tom Hooper has I look, no, just I ended want, his I, whole career <laughs> so you know <laughs> i don't want to think about that
0: uh it is quite difficult and it's like quite a macabre comment to kind of think what the ideal way to have someone's body look like when they're jumping off something high would be because from her comment she sounds like she's saying her like legs were all over the place and all looked silly but like russell crowe to compare mention of uniform to Lem is <laughs> has a very like stiff plank sort of posture and i feel like that also looks quite silly so like i don't really know what it is that i want suicide by jumping off a high thing to look like
1: yeah Mm -hmm. and i mean that's why a lot of instances of it in film are often filmed from the top of the building and then you don't actually see them Mm -hmm. fall yeah i think partially just because as with a lot of the human experience that we find awkward depicting on film Mm -hmm. it probably does look a little silly Mm. in the way that death often is kind of grotesque and silly
0: yep yeah i guess it's too much to ask someone to keep their limbs gracefully composed but not stiff whilst falling to their death yeah yeah this conversation has just been so much jason but yeah so i wanted to make uh, the obvious comparison which is to last episode before we wrap up Mm -hmm. Uh, so last episode we talked about a different film Uh, which I liked less than this one, I will say, Tell It to the Bees, which also has two endings and is also a lesbian period piece, where, like, the original ending in the book is a happy ending and the film gives it a sad ending, we'll just say in a reductive, quick way, for the main couple. And in this one, the original version, written by a lesbian woman, has a much more overtly dark ending with Manuela's death, and in this one has if not a happy ending in any simple way, at least an ending in which Manuela is alive. Yeah. And that is brought about by a director who by all accounts seems to have been quite homophobic and later on a literal Nazi. And that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. Hmm. I think particularly because we probably would remember this film a bit worse if Manuela had died at the end of it, given how often queer characters are killed in film still today
1: yeah and the discourse surrounding that now Now, yes and that you know would arguably be unfair given it's such an early example of Mm. queer film yeah but yeah you're right Mm -hmm. that would be the discourse it's an interesting example of the ways in which film is always going to be a commercial prospect and so the way that something is made will always be a compromise between the desire for commercial success and artistic intent and integrity. But that's not always a bad thing in terms of the results.
0: Mm. Despite this being a bit of a weird, ambivalent time, I enjoy talking about a much earlier piece of film than we have thus far. I'd like if we can sort of keep getting into how we've evolved from this ambiguous kind of sad queer representation to much more modern uh, ambiguous ambiguous kind of sad queer representation
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i definitely enjoyed seeing a kind of older black and white you mm. know early days of sound yeah film that had realistically a fairly modern not in the sense of the year 2020 but certainly comparable attitude towards uh, queer representation to what we saw in even the 70s and 80s Mm.
0: yeah i think this will be a really good sort of thing to have in the back of our minds when hopefully in the not too distant future we talk about some early hollywood queer representation and sort of seeing how that differs or doesn't differ Mm. uh, and whatnot so hopefully that's something we can do one day yeah yeah with that we've been queer as fiction my name is eli i'm jason we respectfully acknowledge the aliquot Willem clan of the boonwurrung we pay our respect to their elders both past and present and we acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to this land if you enjoyed this episode you can find us as queer as fact on tumblr twitter and facebook you can listen to more of our episodes on itunes spotify podbean or wherever you're listening to this If you've been enjoying this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you review us on Apple Podcast or elsewhere on your podcast app of choice, or just out loud to your friends. I suspect we actually get a lot of our listeners through the global queer grapevine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can confirm that this is, uh, Aaron, most of our marketing budget is Mm. uh, me. Is Jason in bars. (laughs) (laughs) Yep.
0: You could swing this so we have to buy you
1: beers. Yeah, to be clear, we don't spend our paycheck our no, money buying me beers. we don't. We beer. d- absolutely don't do
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> if you would like to support us with some sweet sweet dollars, we have a Redbubble where you can buy various items that say queer as fact on them. And we have a Patreon where you can put your spare change for safekeeping. You won't get it back,
1: though, to be clear. <laughs> I wouldn't call it safekeeping, but it is good keeping.
0: Yes. It is going to be kept, but not by you. Yeah. Uh, so you could do those things if you would like. We will be back on March 1st, when Alice will be talking to us about Alice Anderson.
1: Alice squared. Alice squared! Wait, wait, so it's Alice talking about Alice Anderson. Yes.
0: Who is the owner of the first all-female garage in Australia.
1: Oh, cool. Mm. I did not know. That was a genuine reaction. I did not know what the topic of the next episode was until now.
0: Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you then.